Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for another day, for another opportunity to rise again in Jesus Christ, to gather with your people, to remember who we are, and Lord, to remember what you've called us to be and to do. So help us today as we consider how to love our families, to learn how to take the things that we learn from your word and in the context of the church and to take them to our houses and to implement those things in a self-conscious and vigorous and diligent way so that we might know the blessings that come from obedience, from following you, from believing you and trusting you. And we commit this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We have talked about how to love our families and that the Trinity is the model for that, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are an eternal communion of love. They created us in their image, and we are to extend that communion of love into the world. We do it through marriage, husbands and wives. We do it through parenting, through creating and raising children to the glory of God and filling the earth with God-glorifiers so that the earth is to be a place of loving communion. That's the goal. Of course, sin disrupted that, which means it disrupted husbands and wives. It disrupted uh, the relationship between parents and children. And now the task the, is, is made incredibly difficult, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, it, the thorns and thistles of the world, but also the thorns and thistles of sin that constantly inf inflict themselves upon us, upon our families, upon the world, but the gospel, the work of Jesus Christ, has, has brought about hope and a change. That change begins in us as God, the Holy Spirit, uh, renews us, regenerates us, and brings us into a new relationship and a new covenant through Jesus Christ, who takes away our sins, who cleanses us, who forgives us, and sets us on a new path, puts us in a new relationship to him, a relationship that was broken, so that we can love God, but then also so that we can love each other. So that should radically affect husbands and wives, parents and children, and all of our relationships in the world. We've talked about, last time, about the table, what we call the table of communion. We have this, of course, at church each week. We culminate our service by gathering around God's table, but actually we begin our service that way. We begin by gathering around the table and confessing our sins, receiving God's absolution. And as we come to the table, that reminds us that we are in the right relationship with him, and therefore we are able to commune. We hear his word, we're fed by him, and then we renew our commitment and covenant with him. The Lord's table is an archetype of our family tables. As you've heard me refer to it as this being the big table our tables being the little tables. Perhaps we should say our, our family tables should be an imitation of or a reflection of the Lord's table. The whole world is this way. Remember, liturgy is life. And so what we do here on a Sunday morning matters. It means something. It sends a message. It teaches a lesson. Now, it's possible to sit in any lesson, to hear any lecture, and to miss the point, to let it go in one ear out the other, to tune out. 
to not let it soak in, but if we're paying attention, each time we come to the table, we should learn something and we should take something away. We are either reminded or instructed or stirred up in some way. And so we come to the Lord's table each Lord's Day to be fed by the Father who meets our needs above and beyond all that we ask or think. He has given us life, He sustains that life, and He protects that life. The table, then, is the very image of fatherhood. It is the essence, the essence of which, of that fatherhood, is love. God loves us. The Father loves us. And so we began each week, we gathered around the family table as children to be instructed and nourished just before we are sent out the doors of our house, the church, to go live. And so too, as we go to our homes and gather around our smaller tables, we also are there to be instructed and nourished uh, just before we are sent out to live and to fan out to love and to show the world that loving communion. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, you have love for one another. And again, there's so much in the Bible, and really everything in the Word of God is profound, if we pay attention. But it's also very possible for the most profound truths to become trite and uh, kind of a cliche of something that, is kind of floating out there in our minds, but we don't really believe it. We don't really take it to heart, because if we do, it radically changes all of our relationships and our lives. And so our church family is an outpost of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is bigger than Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church. It's all over the place. It's all over the world, thankfully. But then there are all these local gatherings of God's people, of God's family, And each of those are an expression, each of those are an outpost of this universal kingdom that transcends time and nationality. So throughout history, God's kingdom has been expanding and growing. It's not fixed at any given moment. But there are these expressions called the local church, these outposts of the kingdom of God. And then our families are outposts of the church, And these two are always tied together. That's true of us individually, but it's true of us as families also. And so, um, the Lord's table has many metaphors by which we see the depth and the simplicity of God's work. At the table, we see the seriousness of our sins. We see the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice. The grace of God in giving His Son, that God loves us. The peace that is made between us and Him. The power of the resurrection. The declaration of His death, that you declare His death until He comes every time you eat this meal, and all of its implications. The hope of His return. The communion of the saints. It is also, those are, those are some of the profound, deep things, but also there is the simple picture of the gospel, so simple that the youngest child can understand. It is an appeal to all the senses. 
we hear the words of Christ, we hear the words of institution, we see the bread and the wine and the table and the people. We hear, we see, we taste, we feel, we smell. Very real. You say, well, that's not very spiritual. Well, it's because we have to resist this notion of separating the physical and the spiritual. We should. What God does is put those together. God brings body and spirit together, and he wants to emphasize that. Jesus is not just a spirit. Jesus came in the flesh. And the disciples said, we touched him, we handled him. He, he's not just a, a figure. He's not just something in our imagination. He's not just a spirit. He was a real man that you could touch, that you could see, that you could hear, that you could smell just like every other human being. That's our Savior. And so in the table we see that, this simple picture, what I've often called the scratch and sniff of the gospel, not to be disrespectful, but like a little child's book. This table is something, they may not have understood the sermon, but they can understand this if we'll but teach them and instruct them. Like in the Passover, when the Passover meal was given, and of course the Lord's, Supper is the New Testament uh, version of that, if you will, because Jesus is our Passover lamb. The youngest child in the Passover was to ask, what does this mean? And so an explanation would be given about what the Passover means. And likewise, in the Lord's table, the youngest child can ask, what does this mean? We can tell them what the bread means, what the wine means. It is an appeal to the senses, but it's the image of the intimacy also of the groom and his bride. Not unlike the marriage bed. It is that sacrament of intimacy. And we should see it that way. Those are, the, I think, the two things that we see at the table that are given to us in the Bible are the table as the place where we gather to eat and commune, but also the picture of the bride and groom and the marriage bed where they come together in intimacy as well. That's why it's exclusive. That's why it is a covenant renewal. And those are things we should not be ashamed of. We should celebrate and understand that there's an application at our house to both of those. The family table is where we receive food and nourishment. It's also where we receive joy, encouragement, it's where we share, it's where we serve, it's where we are served. It is the place of gratitude and thanksgiving. It's all of this and much more. It is both light and deep. The table is the geographic center of the church and the home. The table is so profound that it encompasses every dimension of our lives and therefore a variety of descriptions and expressions are appropriate. Every trip to the table should be exciting, enlightening, renewing, but they don't have to all be exactly alike, just like every trip to the table at your house is not exactly alike. Sometimes the meals vary in their length and their formality, in what is exactly served and whether it's fast or slow or 
uh, gourmet or routine. We need it all. We need that variety to come together. And likewise, think about Jesus. Jesus is all of that as well, right? He's routine. No form of comeliness. He was an ordinary man in many ways, a carpenter's son. Nothing that would enable you to pick him out of the crowd. But on the other hand, he's the eternal God. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. He's both. And so our tables are pictures of both. So Psalm 23 tells us that God has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. And so there's this curious mystery that does battle in my mind. On the one hand, we live in a world full of sin and misery, and that's a gross understatement. The multitude of individual sins, ours and others, along with their minor and major consequences. The pain, the suffering, the sickness, the injury, and the death, the sadness of the weariness of law and the weariness of loss. This world is an extremely ugly place. On the other hand, as Christians, we at the same time live in a whole, in a world that is wholly unlike the one I just described. God's word tells us that we are to live with contentment, even with joy in the midst of this ugly, broken world. We are to do this with the trials that we have. We're called to rejoice in and for all things, including all the imperfect things. And all the things, except God, of course, are imperfect. In the midst of the ugliness of a fallen world, we are instructed to see with different eyes, to hear with different ears. Philippians 4. 8-9, through finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Again, that's another one of those passages, like all the Word of God, that we can just read and blow right past. Did you hear that last part? If you'll do this, if you will look at this broken, fallen world and find these praiseworthy things, if you will see these through the perspective that we are to see them as Christians, as those who belong to God, that, to know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, what does He say? And the God of peace will be with you. More than that, we are commanded to give thanks in and for everything. 1 Thessalonians 5, 15-18c, that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. 
The answer to this curious mystery of these two worlds, this ugly world and this beautiful world, this fallen, broken world, and this world that we're to rejoice and give thanks, for, rejoice in and give thanks for, the answer to this lies in the fact that we, the redeemed of God, have been and are being rescued from the former, uh, the former world of sin and misery. At the cross, something radical began. Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Thankfully, was not the last born from the dead. He is the firstborn among many brethren. And so we have a new beginning. And that new beginning is a new world. Everything has become new. And so while we're not waiting for pie in the sky by and by, we have actually already begun to receive the benefits of his redemption. Colossians 1, 12-14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. Remember what was causing all these problems? What made the world ugly? What made you ugly? Sin. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sin. A new start. A new beginning. A new life is set in, the new life is set in contrast with the old. Ephesians 5, 1-4, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a sweet-smelling aroma, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. It's amazing how much over and over uh, this we're told to give thanks. In the midst of all that's falling apart, uh, we are to see the gospel We are to see the redemption, we are to see the restoration, and to be moving toward that, working toward that. Even when we're troubled by the evil and the dreadful things of the world, we are exhorted in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. I'd like some pretty practical advice coming here, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, here it is again, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, there it is again, which passes understanding, no, you're not going to understand it all, everything that's going on, the whys and the hows and the whens, but the peace of God, which passes understanding, will do what? Guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's what enables you to get through, to move forward. And to move forward doing what? Rejoicing in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And so as we come to our loaded boards, our loaded tables, and we behold the sights and the aromas and the taste and the textures of God's 
grace and God's gifts to us, his goodness to us, we should see that with new eyes, the new eyes that God has indeed prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies. It is one more token that redemption has begun. It is the appetizer before the eternal marriage feast of the Lamb. And so, let us give thanks. And thus, we call this, in some circles, the Eucharist, the table of thanksgiving. Now, we must start thinking about our family tables again as little versions of the Lord's table. We are still His people when we leave here. We, we go to church, but in another sense, we need to remember we are the church. We're the church when we're at home. We're the church when we're at work, at school. We're always the church. We're the body of Christ. We're always a family. And so, having practiced here on Sunday mornings every week of our lives, having practiced the liturgy, we, live, we, we leave here to live it. If all we're doing is what we're doing here, we're missing the point. We're leaving here to live it. Loving communion should be here, and loving communion should be there. These need to be connected very clearly in our minds. Too many families have abandoned or neglected the family table. I think I've told you before, I once ran into a teenager who told me that he never had a, he had no recollection of ever sitting with his family at a family table. He remembered standing in the kitchen eating pizza out of a box. And too few of us have self-consciously developed the table as a place of communion, where we talk to each other, we pray together, we give thanks together, uh, we, we actually think about this the way we think about the big table. We must gather around our individual family tables to commune with God and commune with each other. The parallels are powerful and important. And I'll read again for you uh, two quotes from Robert Capon on this subject. The table defines both the room it occupies and the household that gathers around it. It is the first, it is the other first investment, the bed being the other, and as long as the household lasts, it remains the one thing that everybody uses the most, the one and often the only place where the family meets, in fact. And so the table is to be a place, a picture of this loving communion we've been talking about, a place of hospitality, provision, peace. But, Capon points out, that's not automatic. Like the Lord's table, the family table has to become a place where something happens, and that only happens if we've given it some thought. And usually that, one of the ways we know we've given it some thought is, particularly fathers, you have addressed your family. From now on, we're going to start doing this at the table, or we're going to do more of this, or Let's be sure today that we ask each other about how your day was and to encourage one another. You know, to self-consciously add some things to your table that will promote loving communion in your family. Here is a great, it's not the only place, but it's certainly a place, 
a central place where you gather and you sit and you learn to give thanks and you learn to pray and you learn to talk and serve and all of that if you self-consciously make that application. Capon continues, and this is a longer uh, uh, quotation from him. Think of it first, that is the table, think of it as a thing. To begin with, it is matter, not thought. It is not with us as the living room furniture is with us because we think it's a good idea, but it is with us as the bed is with us because we cannot function without it. The poorest house has a table and is by that thing, is by that very thing, not so poor after all. But because it is a thing, because it is true to itself, it comes to us as things always come, raw, intractable, and unfinished. Planks on packing crates or polished mahogany on delicate turnings, it is itself. It will not turn from table into board on its motion on its motion any more than box spring and mattress will become marriage bed without considerable care. It is there and it is suitable, but the household that gathers around it must work to bring it into the dance. The table enters the exchanges of the family exactly as the stage enters into the ballet. As a thing, as itself, by being faithful to its own mute and stubborn materiality. It is the floor that makes possible the marvelous leap of grace. It is also the floor that punishes the less than marvelous one with disgrace. The table can make us or break us. It has its own laws and it will not change. Food and litter will lie upon it. Fair speech and venom will pour across it. It will be the scene of manners or meanness, the place of charity or the wall of division, depending. Depending on what is done with it, at it, and about it. But whatever is done, however it enters, it will allow only the possible, not the ideal. No one has ever created the board by fiat. God himself spread his table, but Judas sat down at it. There is no use thinking that all we have to do is wish for a certain style of family life and wait for it to happen. The board is a union of thing and persons. What it becomes depends on how the thing is dealt with by the persons. There is one result, however, which will be produced automatically. The board, or the table, will always give birth to liturgy. There's going to be some kind of habits at your table. Something, something is going to happen there, and whatever happens there is going to then extend out to the rest of the family. It's going to show up in all the relationships, in how we talk to each other, in how we serve one another, in what we think is important, in whether we gave thanks or don't give thanks, in whether we rejoice or don't rejoice, in whether we delight and enjoy or we grumble and complain. All of those things are compacted, if you will, around the table in this condensed form, and they're all going, because it's a liturgy, they're all going to play out 
somewhere else in this thing we call the family. It's either going to be love or something else. It's either going to be communion or it's going to be disharmony. So we too should prepare our tables in the presence of our enemies. Are there any enemies at your house? If there's sin at your house, there are enemies at your house. And so you're going to prepare a table in the presence of those enemies, those forces that are working against loving communion. You're going to create a liturgy at your table that's going to push against that, undermine those negative things, those things that would destroy. Life is full of enemies. But the table is a place of victory and peace, or should be. It is a place of nourishment and encouragement, and it is always a reminder of God's goodness to us. I realized this in the past in teaching on child-rearing, that the family table is really the place where it all comes together. We wash before we come to the table. Here we are served, and we have the opportunity to serve. We have rules and instructions to govern us. Take off your hat. We have discipline. Don't kick your sister. Go to your room until you can act right. We have communion and fellowship, a place of thanksgiving and gratitude, a place of love. It should cause us to pause and refocus on what's important. We've been busy. We've been going here and there in all kinds of different directions, and finally we've stopped. We've come together. We've come apart from all that busyness, and we've come together to look at each other across the table and remember. Psalm 128.3 Your children are like olive plants all around your table. Now when God first created the world, God gave the creation to Adam as food. He said, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be as food for you. Adam was invited to the great banquet of creation so that he could eat and drink and rejoice in God. And so, all creation was a means of enjoying loving communion with God. That's the final destiny of the creation as well. In the renewed heavens and earth of the consummation, we will enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb, the supper of the kingdom forever. Many will come, the Bible says, from the east and the west and recline with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus in the kingdom. And so we are already enjoying that feast now. In, the, in this old creation, we're celebrating the feast of the new creation. With the bread and the wine of the old world, we're anticipating the feast of the resurrected world. And even now, in these decaying bodies, we feed on the body and blood of Jesus. And so the Lord's table points to the consummation, the culmination of all things. Every week, the world of the future becomes the present. So our way of stepping into the future. At this meal, the fruits of the earth, the grain and the new wine and the oil, are made into the food of communion the bread and the wine of this table point to the destiny of all created things. It anticipates the time that the creation eagerly awaits 
The time when the creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Remember we talked about how ugly the world is, how broken it is. It's going to be set free from that into the glorious freedom of the sons of God. From here, remember, we are sent to our homes to repeat these lessons and to live them. Connecting our worship to the way we live with one another. There at our little tables, we apply what we learn from the great table of the Lord. So I've been speaking to you about your family as a place of loving communion. But your family is just an outpost of the community or communion we call the church. And here is where we learn the, here is where we learn the word and how to commune so that we can go home and do the same thing with husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, and children. If we each just came in and picked up some bread and wine when it suited us and we consumed it privately, we would not be discerning the Lord's body and we would not be joining in loving communion. We'd be missing the point. The table is the meeting place, again, where we remember who we are and what's been done for us. We remember that we are dependent and that God the Father is our provider. We remember that we are not our own, but we belong to Christ, and that we are, in fact, members of one another. I'm not the most important person on the earth, not the most important person in the church, not the most important person at my house. You and I, you're an important person, but you're not the most important person. You're part of something bigger than you. That's a pretty important lesson. It's really the lesson every single human being has to learn. We enter into communion with God as He serves us and with one another as we share this meal. We are nourished and renewed at the table. We leave this table, this big table, therefore ready to live in the context of all those lessons. Similar things, again, should be taught and received at our daily family tables, but this great table, this big table, is where we start. We're starting the week here. It's here that where things are set right in our lives as Christians and brought into proper focus. Again, the meal is simple, but the lessons are large. And so, let us eat the covenant meal. Let's renew our covenant oath of loyalty to our triune God. And then as we gather on a daily basis at our little tables, our small societies of Christians We learn to commune in love and to share and to pray and to talk and to receive and give thanks, to serve and be served and to love one another as we are renewed. We cannot neglect such an important huddle without the fragmentation of our little societies. And so we should develop it, guard it, and practice it often, really daily. It is not hard to see the significance of a feast as a symbol. It is an appropriate expression of friendship and fellowship. The one who gives a feast demonstrates to the guest his friendship toward them by inviting them to partake of the food of his house. Kids, let me say something to you. It's very easy. It's really true for all of us. But, you know, when you've had a meal set on a table before you three times every day your whole life, very easy to take that for granted and to think somehow that's just you know, supposed to appear. But that meant somebody worked, 
Somebody labored, somebody loved, somebody thought about you, somebody's taking care of you. You can't do all that by yourself. You need other people. Imagine there's been some rift between two parties, some conflict, some enmity, some broken friendship, and then there's suddenly an invitation to a feast. That would be a declaration that there is peace and fellowship on the part of the one who's giving the feast. Likewise, the one who accepted his invitation would be acknowledging that that breach had been healed and that, there, and that where there was enmity, where there was broken communion, now there is peace, now there is love. In fact, the message of feasting is so universal and so natural um, that we find in, that Scripture is full of that symbolism of eating and drinking and especially feasting. It expresses precisely the same ideas of reconciliation, of friendship, of love, of communion between the giver of the feast and the guest. We see this thought, for example, in Psalm 23 as we began talking about this, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And again in Psalm 36, 8, where it is said of God's people, they shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. Again, in the prophecy of Isaiah 25, which describes the final redemption of the long estranged nations, we read that when God shall, de- uh, that when God shall destroy in Mount Zion the veil that is spread over the nations and swallowed up death forever, then, quote, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, a fat, a fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. In the New Testament, these symbols are used repeatedly by our Lord, for example. The parable of the Great Supper, the prodigal son coming home to a great feast, the fatted calf, and the marriage of the king's son. And, of course, this image shines brightly at the Lord's table each Lord's Day, which he has appointed to be a continual reminder of our need for loving communion loving communion with Him, loving communion with one another, loving communion in our families. How do we love our families? By imitating the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In all our various relations, in all the various places, that's what we're to see. That is our calling. That's who we are in Christ. That's why He made us. That's why He redeemed us. And so I want to urge you, urge us all, to see further, more deeply, more thoroughly why we're here. Everything else, our jobs, our educations, our things, are to serve that purpose. How can we, how can you, contribute to the loving communion that God has called us to. He wants us to take that and to fill the earth with it. To take this ugly world and make it lovely. And that starts at your house. Your house should be lovely. Your marriage, lovely. Your children, lovely. That's beautiful. That's attractive. Makes other people want that. That's adorning the gospel. So let's pray. Father, it is a joyful and pleasant thing to be thankful. 
The soul that blesses shall be made fat. And when we have eaten and are full, then we shall bless the Lord our God for the good, good things which he has given to us. Father, we give wholehearted thanks to you for the good gifts you've given us, for your creating us in your image and calling us to join in the loving communion that exists in the, in the, in the Godhead between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for extending that loving communion. Lord, we confess that we have fouled that plan through our sins, that we are grateful that your love is greater than all of our sins, that you sent your Son to redeem us, to wash us, to cleanse us, to give us a new start, to make us a new creation, that we might know that loving communion with you, with one another in the church, and with one another in our homes. Help us to see that, to feel that, to be enthusiastic about implementing that in our lives, in our families, so that the world might see and believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.